Welcome to the Pivoting Out of Education podcast, where hosts Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Studdard will share their stories of folks who have left campus-based positions in education and K-12 to leverage their skills in other contexts. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average person holds 12 jobs between the ages of 18 and 50. Educators, like Jamie and Tom, often enter their careers thinking they will stay in education forever, perhaps because they're trained to think that way, or perhaps it is hard to see other pathways. Both of your hosts pivoted out of campus-based positions and are loving it. Now they want to give back and support others trying to do the same. Thanks for listening in and enjoy today's episode of the Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. Welcome back to the Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. My name is Tom Stutter. And I'm Jamie Hoffman. And today we are excited to welcome somebody that I am really excited to bring on our show, the Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, Dr. Amy Johnson. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Well, full disclosure for our listeners, I have known Amy since I think it was 2005, When I started my tenure at the University of Southern California, Amy was actually my direct supervisor and brought me to USC to be the director of orientation. And since then, I have maintained the connection with Amy as both a colleague as well as a mentor. I've mentioned many a time that when I look back at my career and the mentors that I've had, Amy is certainly one of the ones that is on the top of that list. Oh, kind of you to say. Thank you. And friends. (laughs) Yes, yes. So for those of you who have been listening to the show, you know that one of the themes has been, if you want to pivot out of education, what happens when you want to maybe come back? Particularly if you're a newer professional and you're thinking, uh, maybe I just want to try my, my, wear, my wares at something else. And in the back of your head, you're thinking, how do I get back to education? If this doesn't work out, am I able to sort of get back into the higher education space. And I know that Jamie and I have spoken with several different folks who this is one of their biggest concerns is if I try it and I fail at it, am I able to come back to higher education? And that is why we wanted to have Amy on the show so that she can talk about that in her role as a vice chancellor and quite quite frankly, in her roles that she's had leading up to being a vice chancellor. What happens when somebody who applies for a role who's been in higher education has left and ultimately wants to come back? How does the hiring committee, the ultimate hiring manager in higher education, sort of view that candidate and think about bringing them them back to a campus-based position? So with that, Amy, can you start us off with sharing a little bit about your background in education and maybe diving in a little bit more into what your current role entails? Sure. So, and you'll have to stop me when I go on too long. So in terms of my educational background, I attended the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, a liberal arts university where I grew up. And then I went to work in Washington state government in healthcare and higher education policy, um, largely, and did that for about five years with a long-term plan ultimately to become a professor. And so I morphed as a result of my time actually outside, you know, following my undergraduate, obtaining my undergraduate degree, where I really developed a love for law and policy and strategic planning, strangely, which is something that a lot of people don't care for, and then tried to figure out how I could combine my long-term goal to become a faculty member and a professor and this newfound interest in policy and the law. And I met with a series of mentors during that period who ultimately said, 
have you ever thought about student affairs as a career? And that was ultimately what led me to the field. And then I moved with my partner all the way across the country to the University of Pennsylvania, where I did my master's and my doctoral work at Penn in higher education. And immediately that spurred a position in higher education. And I have been in higher ed ever since. Interestingly, Tom and I have something in common too, which is that I, you know, a foundational job in my career was director of orientation. And it's something that is still near and dear to my heart in an area that I love a lot. And that has sort of followed me throughout my thread in higher ed from the University of Pennsylvania to ultimately the University of Southern California, Eastern Washington University, and now UNC Chapel Hill, where I'm the vice chancellor for student affairs. And it's very difficult to explain to somebody outside of higher education in particular (laughs) what being a vice chancellor of student affairs is, is all about. But in a nutshell, what I typically like to say is in student affairs, We are primarily responsible for the student learning and development that happens outside the classroom, as opposed to what our colleagues in academic affairs do, which is the learning that happens inside the classroom. So we oversee a a wide array of departments and staff, everything from the sort of traditional things that folks might think of, like dean of students and conduct and housing to campus recreation, to counseling and psychological services and campus health and everything in between. So hopefully that gave you a very quick snapshot of the role and and my path to it. Yeah, it absolutely did. And I I appreciate the nod to being a director of orientation. As folks have heard me say a couple of times on this podcast, of all the roles that I've had in higher education, the one that I look back on probably with the most fondness is my time as the director of orientation. It's also the time that I realized that my feet hurt the most, being in dress shoes 18 hours a day at times. But the excitement that was always there at the beginning of a school year. It's the, in being outside of higher education now, it's the time of the year that I have the most FOMO is in that end of August, beginning of September when campuses are reopening and and I'm in the middle of my normal revenue-based quarter and thinking all these students are moving back to campus and this is the time that I miss. Amy, but before we move on to sort of the next question, I did want to do a quick follow-up and and I'm going to catch you a little bit off guard. So if, if you need to think about it, don't, don't hesitate. But I know just based on our personal background that you chose to become or were, were hired to become the vice chancellor for student affairs during the middle of a global pandemic. And I've, I've uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, I've, I've watched your video that was featured on the website as you are getting, getting students prepared for that return to campus. And I'm, I'm curious what that's been like, you know, as, as the lead student affairs administrator, the lead advocate for students during, during a time of so much unsettledness for, for both you and your family, but also for your students. Sure. Well, I have joked with many of my colleagues that this is definitely not the onboarding program that you would design for someone. (laughs) It's absolutely (laughs) been a roller coaster. And I will say there was a real alignment. I started my job the week that students moved in. And for folks who have not been watching UNC Chapel Hill and its path, we welcomed students onto campus and immediately afterwards saw such a spike in cases and ran out of quarantine and isolation space that we had to make a difficult decision to turn around and tell our students to go home a week later. And that was, I remember the first sort of after hours call that I had to make to my chancellor was that call. Again, <laughs> the, first, the first weekend, not, not what I envisioned for that sort of discussion. But I have to say, it was really, it was incredibly difficult. It was hardest on our students and our families. So I don't want to make it about, you know, me and us. 
But our, our staff also worked full tilt boogie during that entire time to try to get students reacclimated back in a virtual space. And it was it there's no there's no two ways about it. It was incredibly challenging. And I will also say, you know, hard as someone who is new to the community to come in and be learning while this is happening. On the plus side, one of the things I have learned is that when you orient yourself during a crisis and are talking to people at all hours, two o'clock in the morning, you get to be pretty close after a relatively short period. (laughs) So I feel as though, even though I've only been here eight months, I have worked with these colleagues for years and known them for a long time. And have extraordinary respect because I've had an opportunity to see them in a time of real difficulty and see how they performed and how they stepped up and how our students did too. And that that has been wonderful to see, not probably the way you'd want to do it if you had your druthers, but it has been wonderful. It has also been, you know, weird as someone personally with a family recognizing that, you know, those of us who are professionals also have a personal life and families and things that we also have to orient and children that are needing to transition to remote education themselves. And, you know, my partner and I joke often that uh, sometimes we look at each other and say, you know, I know that we're in North Carolina and I know that things are different, but in some ways we could be anywhere because we're living inside this kind of space, you know? So it is still, in some ways, I feel like we haven't acclimated, but again, a real a testament and a, and hopefully something that's self-affirming in some ways that despite the difficulty that we're resilient and that we will make it and that, you know, your colleagues and your students and the community can make all the difference in your experience, even if it's virtual. Absolutely. And what a, an immersive experience it has been for you. Well, I just wanted to jump on the the train of things that I have in common with both of you, just that I oversaw orientation for three years too. Hard choice for me between that and hall director as being my favorite time in my career, because you know the the residence hall position does you know give you love all year round, but those those days of orientation they are certainly unattainable at my age, but. (laughs) they were amazing but thanks for thank you for sharing your journey this year it sounds like it has been definitely one where you have gotten to to practice patience and resilience and I'm sure the folks who report to you are have been very grateful that you've been there pivoting as we do (laughs) (laughs) we we're wondering if you can kind of broadly share with us either from now as you're recruiting or in previous positions, when you're building teams and looking to hire folks to your teams, what are generally the things you're looking for? And then a little bit more specifically, if you're sifting through candidates and you see that they've had corporate or non-higher ed campus-based experience, what are some things that maybe you see that could help identify them as being fitting in, skills and experiences fitting in, and then what might be some challenges for folks that do bring that outside experience? Sure. So things that I look for, first of all, are, you know, I look for folks who are smart and nimble, able to see long-term and think sort of strategically about the implications of decisions and various choices I look for people who are culturally competent and able to work in diverse groups, 
are inclusive in their approach, able to connect across difference. That is particularly important, I think, right now in the in our global environment, but certainly in higher education. I look for also people who are good communicators and able to interact, again, with diverse groups. And I mean that not in just in terms of often how we talk about diversity now, but in higher education in particular, as you both appreciate, working, depending on the institutional type, honestly, but especially for large research universities that have been really the core of my experience. You know, managing these places is really like running a small city. You know, you have students, you have faculty, you have staff, you have parents, you have stakeholders, you have donors, you have, depending on the institutional type, you have boards of trustees and governors. And, you know, there are an an array of different stakeholders in the process and the ability to understand and interact with all of those communities and appreciate the role that they play in our communities is important. So I think the second part of your question is, uh, help me remember, Jamie, was it what challenges might someone from an outside? Or whichever one you want to start with is is challenges or what are the things that you think, oh, that person, you know, that sticks out to me as being something that would, would fit in well. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I don't I don't necessarily know that there are challenges or strengths inherent in being in or outside of education, say for, you know, obviously, if you're in a higher education environment in which you are already familiar with those different constituencies, that would potentially give you a leg up. But that doesn't mean that you can't find a proxy for that kind of experience outside higher education. So the extent to which you work in some sort of multinational corporation with, again, a community that has all different types of stakeholders, and you appreciate and understand how they all network and interface and interplay in the governance of an organization, you could absolutely bring that to bear and in a way that convinces me that you've got a proxy for that. I will say, though, that, you know, if you haven't had an experience like that, then yes, that could be a disadvantage. But there are the other thing that's important to know, and I expect we may touch on this at different points in our conversation today, is in the higher education universe, there are a lot of different institutional types. And what I just described is particularly typical of that large sort of research university or mid-size, you know, even a regional comprehensive, particularly in public higher education, there tend to be more stakeholders in the process. So that may apply more than it does to a modest liberal arts college. And the t- not necessarily in terms of the types of players, but in terms of the interface that you have and, and the and the direct role and bearing that they have on the governance of the institution and on your role as a leader, um, depending on what you do. So I don't necessarily know that I would say if you're outside higher education, you're at a distinct disadvantage because you don't have that. If you're even if you're in higher education, you may not have some of those experiences that would really be important for you, depending on the institution, the specific institution, the institutional type, its culture and so forth. So I think that there's just an inherent degree of variability that doesn't necessarily apply, uh, imply, I should say, an advantage or a disadvantage. Again, I think it's your ability to speak to your experience and translate it to that community that would be important. I will also say that I think there are some 
some historic norms that still exist. I think they are changing and and some parochial thinking, even within higher education, about the idea that if you haven't worked in a liberal arts university, you don't know what this particular community is like. You can't possibly appreciate. We do that, too, I think, at the, at the research university side. But I think it's a harder fit because we're so multifaceted and we often are so large that, honestly, there's a place for almost anybody to fit. So I, I still do think there's some there's some differences that while uh, I'm generalizing here, I think may apply depending on who you are, what your background is, what institution you're moving to, the sort of norms and culture of that institution and that type. There's a couple things there that I want to hit on, Amy. One, the, the first thing that you said, which is when you look for people to hire, the, the first quality you look for is somebody who is smart. And that gives me great excitement since you hired me at one point in my career. So yes, thank indeed. you for saying yeah. that. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you helped her realize that should now be. <laughs> yeah. so take that one way or the other. Don't Tom. ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. So yes, that stuck out to me. And it's funny because it's the first quality that I look for in people that I hire now. You know, I tell my talent acquisition team all the time, I want a smart person. I can teach them how to do the the smaller details of the job as long as they're smart, they have the critical thinking skills, et cetera. So I, I definitely appreciate that that was, that was one of the things that you talked about. I also wanted to share, you know, I remember my experience when I was looking to sort of move campuses, I was making the decision that I, I, want, I was ready to leave TCU and I interviewed for a position at the University of Texas, this large, massive public research one institution. And I remember one of the questions I got from the audience was, how are you going to translate your skills from such a small private school to this large, you know, multifaceted institution? Of course, they didn't realize that I had worked at, you know, campuses like Arizona State University at the time, which was quite large. But I, I think to your point, it is something that sort of sticks out. People are going to ask that question, how do you translate from... X to Y, whether you're coming in and out of higher education or you're transferring or wanting to look at moving between sort of institutions that may have a different demographic than the, than the one you were at. So I really appreciate that the advice is really based and contingent upon what you're looking to do and that the skills that you bring to the table are nuanced, you know, no matter what position you're looking to go into. Sort of the follow-up to that, you know, you've obviously been interviewing folks for, for quite some time in, in your career. When you see applicants who have maybe left higher education, gone on to explore something else, regardless of what that is, maybe they've gone to work in a corporate environment or a nonprofit or an NGO, or maybe they've taken a year off, even in a gap year, and then they've decided to return at a later date, what do you, what do you typically sort of see or what rises to the, to the forefront in your mind when you see those resumes? And I guess, do you see these candidates who have made that jump and then want to come back as more competitive, less competitive? Or is it just as nuanced as you as you said? Or do you sort of automatically think mm, I need to sort of qualify this person a little bit more? I, I I hate it because it's not an easy answer, but I think it is nuanced. I think it is dependent on the person and what they want to do and the reason they left. But I will say this: I think it was far more common 10, 20 years ago for somebody to be a lifer in higher education. It is, I have observed, particularly with, you know, my friends, my immediate students, the community that I'm connected with, to see many more people leaving higher education and deciding that they want to do something else. And I think that this is for an array of reasons. I think that, you know, it is not getting easier to be in higher education. <laughs> it is getting harder. It is not a highly remunerative career path. 
it is one in which requires a great deal of patience. I mean, when I talked about, you know, leading a university in many ways is like leading a small city. And again, for those of us in higher education, we understand what the shared governance model means, which is that there is not as, and I'm oversimplifying here, but, you know, when you work in a corporation in which at the end of the day, you know, pick the customer or the stockholder is key. And as long as that primary audience or that primary couple of audiences, those are happy, you're good to go. It doesn't work that way in higher education. You know, you need to consult and we work with individuals who often come at issues from very diverse and distinct perspectives. And it is about balance and negotiating and trying to develop in a shared governance model, which means everybody participates in the process and the leadership of the university, it often takes longer, it requires patience, it requires resilience and some stamina. Uh, and that's not easy to do. And particularly when you know individuals, we often require or ask individuals who come into higher education to have master's degrees at a minimum, that you know, those aren't getting any cheaper to obtain. And when people see what's the return on my investment for that degree and the quality of life, we also have not nine to five jobs. I understand people looking at what's outside and saying, I want to have a family and I want to have a different quality of life, which is not to say that you cannot have a family and a quality of life. Let me stop right there. Uh, but, but you know, they're, they're saying, I have some other priorities and some other things that I want to do. The other thing that I have observed is particularly as corporations and industry and other organizations augment and increase what I see as a real sort of internal human development and leadership and learning kinds of functions. You know, folks who come with higher education degrees who have done this kind of work are often in high demand and they can pull down salaries outside of the higher education environment that again, I don't think existed 10 and 20, 30 years ago. So there are more choices and there is demand. And I think increasingly higher education is becoming a challenging environment to work in. And so I, I, I perceive that many more people are leaving. And that means I think this, this important conversation that we're having now about potentially pivoting out and pivoting back in is really timely because we're going to see more of this. And I think what has not been the norm again, or what was not the norm 20 years ago is going to become more the norm. The extent to which you can show me as someone who is a hiring officer, that you understand the higher education environment, you understand shared governance, you understand the nuance and the negotiation and the various players and how they may come at issues. You can demonstrate for me the ability to see nuance and to withstand and understand the dynamics at play. You know, I, I would not determine that just because you've been out for a year or two or five years or 10 years, you can't, you can't again, reactivate that memory and make sure that you've shown to me that you can still demonstrate those skills and apply them on a daily basis in, in a higher education environment. So I don't I don't think that, again, I don't think that it serves necessarily as a disadvantage or an advantage. And I think if anything, because this fluidity in and out of higher education is becoming more common, I think we're going to get better about thinking about it and identifying transferable skills and really seeing the benefit of bringing in folks who have had an outside experience, which is another thing that we should talk about. I think that is important and is something that is an asset for us going forward. Again, this idea that 
people used to, I think it was far more common for people to graduate, go to school, go to a particular university, college or university and work there for 20 or 30 years. That also doesn't happen anymore. And the extent to which people show us that they have done an array of other things, worked an array of different institutions or for different organizations in and out of higher education is an asset. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. I think that you're right when you talk about sort of this this new world in which we live in where folks are probably the fluidity, as you mentioned, sort of going in between different types of institutions or organizations, whatever those may be. You know, I know that working at, you know, the company that I work at, and initially when I started, there was, you know, a bias against higher ed people uh, mm-hmm. coming in because there was, well, are they going to be able to translate what they do into what we do? And I've successfully hired, I think, six or seven people now from higher education into the roles that I oversee, most of which are in sort of customer education or corporate learning and development. And they've been able to make that transition really well. And it's it's interesting to sort of watch them apply sort of the, the unique lens that they had in higher ed to their new role. You know, I often say, and I, I think folks may remember from my previous episode where, where it was my interview, that my, my CEO says many a times, please do not give me the theory, just give me exactly what we're gonna do. But in my head, I'm always putting together the theoretical right. construct. I'm just not giving it to him. I'm not telling him this is where it came from. I'm just saying, this is what, this is what makes sense. And so I, I think you're right. That fluidity is going to be there and both sides of the fence, whether it's higher education institutions or quote unquote corporations are going to have to start to rethink this you know, dynamic of people sort of moving in and out of their careers or the positions within their career as, as they move forward. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. And I think you're right. In higher education, we have typically led more with the theory or the research. Where I think we're going to see an increasing alignment is, I see this outside higher education and inside, is a focus on something that might be more common vernacular, which is outcomes. You know, what can you show me? What are the effects? From a student affairs perspective, higher education, but certainly, but student affairs in particular, I'm looking for student learning outcomes, right? But there's no, there's no reason why I can't translate that focus on outcomes. What are the effects? What is our return on investment, right? That's an outcome. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, what do we know are the impacts of our work? And there's no reason why either inside higher education, you can't sort of turn that language and speak it out or the reverse also being true. That's that's so true. In fact, I, I just wrote a blog article today, submitting it to Jamie for posting that talks about the those transferable skills. And it's 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 usually just the language. You know, the skills that I built in higher ed transfer over into the corporate world. When I talked about learning outcomes and 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 student participation rates and things like that, those translate over to what I do now in just different words. I now talk about return on investment. I talk about metrics. I talk about results. All the things that I did in higher education, just a matter of reframing it from a conversational perspective. And I think the flip will be true if I ever do decide that I want to go back into higher education, you know, particularly in a campus-based position. So for sure on that. That wasn't a plan. I promise you I had no, no, no. <laughs> yes. I, I've told I've told Amy many a times that I would follow her wherever she goes, and yet she left and has never brought me with her. Maybe that is a mental note that I should take. No. <laughs> I was gonna say, Tom, that I don't know if you could afford to go back to higher ed, which is, I guess, emphasizes a point you made, Amy. Yeah. Yes. But I just I also worked on a blog this weekend. It's not gonna come out for a few months, but it's literally a little comparison in terminology. So it just struck me that I don't know why I hadn't thought of it as we were preparing to chat with you today, that the degree to which folks transfer, especially in a resume or written format, and then through the application process, their work 
it's the same, you know, sort of back and forth, but broadly, so they can use our little dictionary we're going to publish, but they'll have to just read the other column whether we're changing their resumes back. Broadly speaking, though, what advice might you have for individuals who are looking to make the pivot or thinking about it? But they do have in the back of their head that they might want to come back. And they're, they're actually maybe afraid. I know I was. I was really afraid to make, make the change out of fear of, of what that would mean for me. So what, what things do you think they should consider or just broad advice you have? I think the important piece of advice is to continue to keep your finger on the pulse. If you know that you want to come back, you know, make sure that you're keeping up with the Chronicle or your disciplinary journals or your academic resources. Think about ways that you can continue to keep your network obviously activated. I think there's a lot of ways to do that, whether or not that's participating on boards or advisory councils for the university or even K-12. I mean, I, I think that too, just making sure that you continue, you continue to have a connection to education and are up with the sort of vernacular and the key issues. And so that's an obvious one. I think you can, you know, volunteer to be a mentor. You can, as an alumni member of an institution, often they have application readers. There are all sorts of roles that you can play in higher education that I think help convey that you are still connected to us, still invested in higher education. I mean, ultimately, that's too something that I really look for, which is, you know, do you do you care? Will you reflect in your daily work an investment and an understanding and a commitment to the mission of the institution? And things like that say to me that even when you had an opportunity to step away, you still kept a toll. You still kept a connection with us, that that is something that is sort of near and dear to your heart and central to who you are. Uh, that conveys a lot. Consider how you could be you could establish yourself or establish your organization as the host for an intern and be an intern advisor. You know, I think these are things that all often not only help, again, you be an insider to the higher education network, but that, again, convey that sort of sense of mission and investment in what we do that say a lot. Yeah, I appreciate all of those suggestions. I remember when I first made the pivot and still had sort of that inclination that I would potentially go back into higher education someday. One of the things that I did was I got involved with the Alumni Association in the Portland area, and I went to their send-off programs for their incoming students coming from the Portland area. And it was an opportunity, again, just to continue that connection. One of the things that you brought up, and and, and you brought it up in your last answer too, and just want to sort of probe at that a little bit, is keeping up with the trends. You know, I think that that was my biggest fear when I left higher education is I could maintain the network and I could, you know, stay subscribed to, you know, the NOTA website and things like that. But what I was really nervous about was the the sort of the ongoing changing trends that happen in higher education. For example, if I stepped out 15 years ago, I would not know what Title IX, you know, the impact of Title IX in today's world is. You know, I would have still thought about it solely as a, as a sports-based law. And so, what, what, other than reading the Chronicle, what advice do you have specifically for how to keep up with the latest trends in higher education and specifically student affairs beyond sort of the journals? What are, what are other ways that people can, can, can maintain that connection and, and stay, stay on top of that? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And I, I think there is a heartening answer here, although um, sometimes challenging when you're living it, which is, again, unlike I think 20 and 30 years ago when higher education institutions were largely thought to be black boxes and it was sort of they did their own thing and it wasn't news. 
Um, you know, higher education today is far more in the news and there is far more a sense of investment. I think, you know, due in part to the cost of education, due to the taxes we all pay, again, due to the sort of the approach that we are now taking in a much more transparent and I think open and sort of disclosive way about how taxpayer resources are spent, particularly for those of us who are public universities. But, you know, there's there's a whole education section now in the New York Times, which, you know, is an easy way to keep up with what's going on in higher education, right? In a way that I don't remember being quite as robust. I mean, I, I full disclosure, I mean, it's hard to sort of go back in time. 20 years ago in my career, but I don't remember sort of myself keeping tabs on the New York Times education section in the way that I do now, right? And, you know, and things like Title IX is now a national conversation in a way that it wasn't before. Things like, and, you know, speaking very personally, Silent Sam become a national conversation in a way that they weren't. I think, you know, 20 and 30 years ago. So I think it is much easier today to just do some sort of basic reading to keep a finger on the pulse, but also, you know, watch what's happening at the Department of Education level and see what's going on. Policy can is actually not that hard to keep up with, it, it, at least in terms of a sort of basic working knowledge in a way that, again, I, I think we really transformed within the last couple of decades. So I, I think it's much easier to do today. And certainly folks like you all, blogs and social media, you know, again, you may not necessarily always have an insider's perspective, but in terms of keeping your finger on the key issues and understand what's going on and what, you know, a day in the life of a vice chancellor or a director of orientation or a residence hall director, it's far easier to do today than it used to be. Yeah, that's for sure. I I don't remember being on the news when I was an undergraduate and during my undergraduate years being on the news for anything other than sports. And now schools are on the news for, you know, the good and the bad, you know, because like you said, you know, there's much more accountability, not just from a from a financial perspective, but just from an outcome perspective. You know, there's I probably see at least once or twice, you know, a month people posting on some blog, some Facebook post, you know, the value of a college degree and what does that turn into? And I always feel like I'm I'm the one sort of, you know, pontificating about why it's so important to get that college degree. But the question's being asked, I think, a lot more than it than it was when I was a kid. You know, it was sort of an assumed, I'm going to college, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. And now there's more of that conversation of, do you go to the four-year? Do you go to the two-year? Do you go to the technical school? Do you do you go straight to work? Do you go into the military? There's there's a lot more of that. And and I know even in the positions that I host now, most of the positions that I have require a degree, but not all the positions across my company require a degree. Some of them require experience. Some of them require certificates, particularly if they're on the, the software engineering side of the house. And so it's definitely something that schools are much more in the news today than I think they ever were. They definitely are. And frankly, it's one of the things that, again, I think is the reason why some folks have gotten out of higher education, because they don't like their, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And it is a process often in which you're regularly having to explain yourself and the decisions that you're making, again, in a way that it didn't, it wasn't always thus. <laughs> but, you know, I guess then the other question is, you know, do, do we think that is right and responsible? And particularly when we're using significant taxpayer dollars and significantly more tuition dollars out of pocket for many people. You know, I understand that. And I think it is something that all of us have to sort of find a balance and say, 
is that an environment which I'm comfortable with and, and I, I really feel responsive to? And there's no right answer. That's, you know, everybody's, everybody's answer may be different to that. But it is definitely one of the things that has changed and in some ways has made our work more complicated. But from an outsider, you know, from someone outside higher education's perspective, it's easier to keep a finger on the pulse. Right. Well, Amy Johnson, thank you so very much for participating in our podcast. Full disclosure, I, I knew I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about this, but there was a, a secondary reason I wanted to get to the chance to see you and connect with you after so many years of being apart, but obviously keeping in touch via Facebook and Christmas cards and whatnot. Yeah. So again, thank you so much for, for being a part of, of today's show. The insight that you've provided is really valuable. For our listeners, you know, one of the things that we've talked about quite a bit is, is the grass greener on the other side? And Here's the deal. The grass is green on both sides. It's just a matter of which flavor or which color of grass, which color of green you want to actually go to. Uh, For those of us who have made the pivot, there's definitely days that I think about going back into higher education and what that would look like. And there's also days that I think, oh my goodness, I could never go back and do that because I I don't know if I would translate as well as I did, you know, five or six years ago. And, And hearing from Amy today shows us that it is possible. And it's a matter of doing some of the things that we've talked about during this podcast and and some of the things that our guests have talked about, which is, you know, really thinking about your language, thinking about the transferable skills, making sure you keep a pulse of what's going on in the world, both in corporate and in higher education. And the door is really open. As Jamie has mentioned a couple of times in her podcast, the glowing door of opportunity is there. It's a matter of if you're willing to step through it. So with that, thank you listeners for being a part of the podcast today. Don't forget to visit our website at pivotingoutofedu.com. And if Jamie and I can assist you in any services, you can email us at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com. Thank you again, everyone. As always, thank you to our guests for joining us. Additionally, special thanks to our sound editor, John Alexander. We spend one third of our life at work. It should be something we believe in and have a passion for. It's okay if that passion changes. If you are thinking about pivoting out of education or know someone who is, visit our website at pivotingoutofedu.com for advice, testimonials, and blog articles. Have advice to share or would like a private consultation? Contact Jamie or Tom via the website or at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com.